Would you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for your presence with us. We thank you that you called us here from so many places around the country to come together to worship you in spirit and in truth, to join our voices together and to join our hearts and minds together. And as we spend our time now thinking about what is going on in our world, help us to see it through your eyes. Help us to come to understand and appreciate the problems that we are facing within the culture, but also to see your solution. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, first of all, um, I need to let you know that C.R. Wiley and Tom Price, my partners in crime on the podcast, had wanted to come, but we're facing a number of issues in Connecticut. One of them is a two-week quarantine when I get home. And uh, Chris, in particular, as a pastor, he's got a lot of things that are coming up in the church, and he just really couldn't afford to be here. But it wasn't lack of interest or lack of desire. So I just want you to know that. Now, in this talk, up, up till now, what we've been hearing a lot is what you need to do, how we need to respond to what's going on in our society, to the renewal of the church, and things like that. I'm actually going to take it a step back from there. When you read about all the various tribes of Israel coming to join David, it made a very interesting statement about the tribe of Issachar. It said that the men of Issachar understood their times and what needed to be done in Israel. And what I want to do is to spend a little bit of time talking about understanding our times. We are facing an incredible challenge broadly in the culture right now. But the good news is we've got the solution. We have what the culture is looking for. Now, where I want to start is actually going back about 100 years to this gentleman. That's Max Weber. Max Weber was a sociologist, very uh, important thinker in a lot of ways. Some of you are probably familiar with the idea of the Weber thesis, which is a connection between capitalism and Protestantism, especially Calvinism. That's not what I want to look at, though. This is from a speech that he gave in 1918 that was later printed in the book, Sciences of Vocation. And this, is, this was his assessment of his day in 1918. The fate of our times is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization and, above all, by the disenchantment of the world. Precisely the ultimate and most sublime values have retreated from public life into either the transcendental realm of mystic life or into the brotherliness of direct and personal human relations. It is not accidental that our greatest art is intimate and not monumental. What Weber is saying here, it's kind of a long quote, but the, the, the point of this is that in the modern world, in the world of science and bureaucracy and technology, there's no room for enchantment. There's no room, the, the word that he uses here is really, um, we translate it into English as disenchantment. The German is literally something like the demagification of the world. It's taking the magic out of it. And what he means then is that there's no meaning, there's no purpose, all there is is technique. All there is is, well, science. We are left in a world bereft of meaning, bereft of purpose. 
Now, Weber isn't the first person to have made this observation. It turns out uh, one Friedrich Nietzsche had also talked about it. Although he didn't use the term disenchantment, this is what he had to say. And again, he's reflecting on the impact of modern science on technology, on the idea that we can actually solve all problems. We can understand everything and solve it using science. He said, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear to be worthy of it? When Nietzsche said God is dead, he did not mean literally that God is dead. What he meant is that transcendence, meaning, purpose, anything above just sort of the brute facts of life has been completely destroyed, has been completely eliminated from modern life by science, by technology, by bureaucracy, by systems, by technique. What Nietzsche meant when he said the death of God is what Weber means when he talks about the disenchantment of the world. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of a game here. There was a poet and philosopher by the name of John Chardee who way back in the early 80s on NPR, yes, I did listen to it, uh, used to do these things called word rambles. And what he would do is play with words. He'd take a word and trace etymologies and related words and things like that. Well, I want to do a word ramble for you, starting with the word enchantment. Now, the word enchantment, literally, if you break it down into its roots, it means to sing into something. And this was an idea of, imb of imbuing it with magic. You know, through song, through music, you could actually imbue something with magic. This is what, what they used to believe. But we use enchantment in a couple of different ways. We can use it about magic, but we also find the word enchanted. Uh, enchanted could be like an enchanted forest, in which case it is magical, but we could also go to musicals and get some enchanted evening. It's an evening that isn't literally magical, but has something special, something sparkly about it. And of course, you can go from enchanted to enchanting. Um, we could talk about an enchanting young woman. So let's stop with the moment, for the moment with enchanting. And from enchanting, we can then, uh, some, uh, an enchanting young woman would frequently be described as charming. By the way, did you know that the word charm really means magic? A charm is magic. It's a way of doing magic. Uh, charming young women are often described as glamorous. Now, we're going to take a little bit of time with glamorous because it turns out that there are a couple of other things that are involved here that are less obvious. But let's just start with the idea of uh, being glamorous. We would usually frequently associate this with, for example, cosmetics. Um, now, this is one of these things that's largely invisible to us, but the word cosmetics has as its root word, where we get the word cosmetics, comes from the word cosmos. Yeah, cosmos, like the universe. The idea here 
is that the universe is a place of ordered beauty. In Greek thought, the cosmos is a place of ordered beauty. And so with cosmetics, what you're trying to do is create ordered beauty on someone's face. Okay. So that's where you get cosmetics from cosmos. But let's, uh, let's go back from there to glamorous. Um, it turns out that, again, it's one of these things that we don't normally think about, but the word glamorous, of course, has its root word glamour. Did you know that glamour originally refers to magic? A glamour is an illusion. Glamour is an illusion. And we can see that in a couple of different ways, but literally it meant a magical spell that created an image of something that wasn't there. And that in turn, originally, in the old Scottish, comes from the word grammary. Grammary, well, you can see, obviously, the root word in there is gonna be grammar. We'll get to that in a second. But the idea here is that grammary was a term that referred to all kinds of knowledge, and specifically to occult knowledge. So it was connected to magic. So grammar is then connected to magic, but when we think of grammar, we think of it in terms of language. So one place that you can start are names. A name, it turns out, in ancient thought, was magical. If you knew something's true name, you had control over it. You could actually literally control it by simply speaking the name. And if you have any doubts about the wisdom of this, think about this room. If someone called out your name, I guarantee you would hear it above this room, and it would catch your attention. It would grab you. There's a certain degree of magic in names. But of course, along with names, when we're talking about grammar, we also get words. So let's pause for a moment with word. Uh, word, of course, in Greek is logos, which refers not just to words, but it's also the root word for us of our word logic. It refers to reason, it refers to thought, it refers, in fact, in Greek thinking, to the organizing principle of the entire universe. Which is why, in the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, all things were made by or through him. But in addition to that, another thing that we might think of in connection with grammar is spelling. Now, the word spell is an interesting word in English. It comes from a, a proto-Old High German word, spellam, which means to speak, to say, uh, a discourse, uh, something along those lines. It's actually pretty much identical to our word spiel in English. When we talk about somebody having a spiel, it's a you know, it's speech or something like that. But from the word spellam, we get spell, as in spell a word, but we also get spell as in, cast a spell. So once again, we're back to magic. Because casting a spell and spelling come from the same root, the same basic idea. And then from spell, of course, how do you cast a spell? The most common way of doing this, if you're going to use words, is through something called an incantation, which, by the way, is Latin for enchantment. So what I've just done here is I've done a word ramble. I've walked you through the idea of enchantment and a lot of words associated with it. For me, this is fun. I mean, I was a linguistics major as an undergrad. I enjoy this kind of thing, but there is a point to it. Let's go back to the idea of disenchantment. 
If we have a disenchanted world, what does that mean about the world? It means that everything I just told you in this word ramble is false. So, with a disenchanted world, one of the first things we lose is beauty. And if you have any questions about the loss of beauty, I would encourage you to take a good look at the picture on the screen. That's modern art. I am not entirely sure, but I think that that is supposed to be a picture of a person who has been dismantled and reassembled, not the way it really is, but according to whatever it is that the artist was thinking at the time. It is literally a dismantling and reassembling of a person. This is essentially what you get in Cubism, Picasso, and all of those people. They are deconstructing form. So form no longer matters. Your goal in art, frankly, these days in modern art, your goal in art is to shock. It's not to portray beauty. Yet, classically, beauty was understood as one of the fundamental principles behind the universe, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And the artist's goal was always to portray beauty. That's completely lost, because in a disenchanted world, there is no beauty. We don't only lose beauty, though, but we lose the cosmos. The cos now, that may sound strange, but remember, the idea of the cosmos is it's the world, the creation itself, as a place of ordered beauty. In a disenchanted world, there's no order. The best you've got are a bunch of impersonal laws of physics that govern what happens. But even there, when we're explaining where we come from, we don't rely on the laws of physics. We rely on random chance. So there is no order. There is no structure. We are just a cosmic accident. There's no purpose to anything. There, uh, the universe just exists as an unbroken chain of laws of cause and effect working itself out. There's no end, there's no direction, there's no purpose. In a disenchanted world, that conclusion is inevitable. And that is what both Nietzsche and Weber were talking about. Interestingly enough, we also lose grammar. Our names, our identity, suddenly become up for grabs. And if you don't understand anything about our culture right now, the one thing that should be obvious is that people are struggling desperately to try to figure out who they are. They're struggling desperately with the issue of identity. They don't, they've, they've forgotten their names. They don't know who they are anymore. But in a disenchanted world with no grammar, you have no name. You have no identity. Word vanishes. Words become tools or more likely weapons. Because you see there's no connection between word and meaning, because there is no meaning. Words are just arbitrary things that people use to try to get other people to do things. Meaning is gone, I've mentioned that before. Logic vanishes. And in fact, as we'll see when we look at the way the culture is developing, what we see is logic self-consciously rejected. All of this 
is what happens when you take the magic out of the world. The danger here, and this is something that pretty much everybody recognized, the danger of a disenchanted world is that people would try to re-enchant it. Because you see, there are very, very few people who can really live like Macbeth. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Very few people can really live with that. And all of the people who talk about disenchantment or any of its variations understand this. So Nietzsche, for example, argued that what would happen, what had to happen, is that someone he called an Übermensch, usually translated as Superman, literally Overman, an Übermensch would come along who would create meaning out of nothing, just by a sheer act of will, by that, by that sheer force of will and the will to power, he would invent meaning and do it in a way that was so compelling that it would pull the people around him to follow. Weber similarly argued that his fear was that there would be a charismatic leader that would arise, that would provide people with meaning, purpose, and all of that kind of thing. Again, not really objectively real, but just something that they could grab hold of and follow. Less than 20 years after Weber gave this speech, that guy ended up coming to power in Germany in the very country where Weber gave that speech. Then you get your existentialists, or as I like to call them, your nihilism light people. That's light, L-I-T-E. Um, these, are, these are people who really fundamentally agree with Nietzsche, but instead of looking, looking for an Übermensch, they tell you, in this essence, you've got to be your own Übermensch. You've got to recognize that the world is meaningless, that your life is meaningless, that it's all absurd. You've got to face squarely the despair this produces and then decide to go on living for something arbitrary that you pick as a source of meaning or purpose or value for yourself. This is what they called authentic living. It's, well, just put it this way. Uh, I think it was Camus who said that once you understand this, the only really interesting philosophical question is whether or not to commit suicide. It turns out, though, that there were a lot of people who looked at Weber's analysis and said, oh no, this disenchantment thing is not really the problem. We've got science. Science can give us the answer. Science can do this. Think Star Trek, okay? Science is our way out of all of this. Well, that raised its own set of problems. Now, I'm going to go to a place that most people, especially most Christians in America, don't think of as being the center of the problem in a lot of ways. The 1950s. When you take a look at the 1950s, what is American culture like? Well, first of all, a lot of people seem to think that this was a golden age of American Christianity. Actually, it was the golden age of liberal Christianity in America, where everybody belonged to a nice, polite church, that accepted liberal theology. There was almost no presence of evangelicalism or anything like that there. So let's get, get that idea out of the way. People were polite. They followed you know, all kinds of uh, social norms, those sorts of things. And it was a world of science. It was a world of technology. It was a world of bureaucracy. It was a world of consumerism. It was a world of everything that Weber pointed to as what was causing disenchantment. That's the thing we forget. Oh, and by the way, as far as science goes, 
it's worth noting that science was both the source of hope and the source of fear because we always had the threat of nuclear war, the atomic bomb. So science both creates our fears, but also gives us our hope in the 1950s. And if you look at, for example, all your monster movies coming out in this period, your Godzillas and things like that, every one of them is a reflection of fear of nuclear war. It was always there sort of subconsciously there in the background, and sometimes quite out in the open. It's worth noting, by the way, that in 1955, a movie came out, a very famous movie, starring one Marlon Brando, called Rebel Without a Cause. And that Rebel Without a Cause, that film, I think in a lot of ways expressed almost prophetically what was about to happen in American culture. Because people looked at this disenchanted life with all of its glitz and everything else and started looking for a way out. A rebellion against it. Now, it turns out that a lot of this, had the, the, one of the key elements of this rebellion, I'm not going to go through all the details here, we've only got an hour. Well, less than that now. But one of the key elements of it starts with this gentleman, whom I assume you all recognize, that's Sigmund Freud. Freud had a theory that mental illness and unhappiness came about because people had sex drives that were repressed by society. You know, society did not allow you to fulfill your sexual desires. And that the, the difference between what you wanted and what society permitted created anxiety, guilt, and all of that. And that was the source of mental illness. Now, Freud himself was rather conventional in his life. And he believed that the solution for this was psychoanalysis, where you could talk to a psychiatrist, eventually you'd begin to reveal your, well, your confession. You'd begin to reveal your guilty desires and things like that, and he would never judge you. And since he accepted you, even with all of that, that would relieve your anxiety and that would cure you. It doesn't work, but that's what Freud believed. Now, the reason why I've got to start with Freud is that Freud became incredibly important in American culture in the 40s and 50s. You cannot watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie if you don't understand Freud. You'll never get what, what Hitchcock is doing. It's all over his movies. And it became more and more embedded in American culture. And along with this, this well, I won't even use the word gentleman for him, uh, this is Kinsey. Uh, Kinsey did some really fraudulent analyses of the behavior of uh, sexual behavior of men in America published in 1948 and women in 1953 that led to the conclusion that straight-laced American culture was anything but. I'm not going to go through any of the details here. Suffice it to say that even though the Kinsey Institute still exists, this stuff has been thoroughly debunked. But it created the impression that Americans were a lot more free and loose about their sexual behavior than people had really realized. And then that same year, 1953, in which he released his report on sexual behavior of American women, came the first issue of this guy's magazine, Playboy. So all of these things are beginning to create an institutional context or a cultural context for some sort of new way of looking at sexuality. 
and it was further pushed by a woman named Lena Levine. Lena was a, uh, a gynecologist and a psychiatrist, and she was heavily involved with Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood. In 1953, the same year, we have Lena Levine saying this, well, our alternative solution to the problem of guilt and unhappiness and things like that, think Freud here, is to be ready as educators and parents to help young people obtain sex satisfaction before marriage. By sanctioning sex before marriage, we will prevent fear and guilt. We must be ready to provide young boys and girls with the best contraceptive measures available so that they will have the necessary means to achieve sexual satisfaction without having to risk possible pregnancy. 1953. It will take a while for all of these things to come to roost, but of course in the 1960s we have the sexual revolution. Now the sexual revolution, the basis behind it, if you want the sort of intellectual argument for it, is if Freud is right that guilt, you know, that our sexual guilt is caused by society repressing our sex drives, Freud's solution of psychoanalysis is way too complicated. We can simplify this. All we need to do is remove social taboos on sexual behavior. Then there will be no distance between your desires and what society lets you do. So once we remove all restraints on sexual behavior, everybody will be happy, everybody will be healthy, we'll end depression, we'll end mental illness and everything else. That is the theory behind the sexual revolution. You can see it in Lena's quote here. There is, of course, a secondary goal here, and that is to dismantle middle-class mores. And they were very self-conscious about that, too. Now, the problem is that, I mean, number one, it doesn't work. The sexual revolution has actually increased depression among women and all kinds of other things. I don't really think I need to go through that here. But the other part of it is that once the genie is out of the bottle, it's really difficult to convince them to get back in. And what started as sexual liberation turns into sexual anarchy. And this is where disenchantment genuinely comes home to roost. If you talk to a college student today about their identity, their two, first two things that will come to mind is their sexual identity, meaning who or what do they like to sleep with? And the second thing that will come to mind is their gender identity, whether they identify as male, female, neither, both, or any of the, what is it, 59 other genders that Facebook recognizes? The disenchantment of the world destroys identity. It destroys name. It destroys purpose. And a lot of the chaos that we're seeing associated with transgender and everything else really comes from that. What we end up with really is a kind of neo-Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient philosophy that argued that the physical world is largely irrelevant. The thing that is really important, the thing that is really relevant is the spiritual, it's the non-physical world. If you talk to a transgender person, they will tell you, I don't care what my body is, I am what I am on the inside. It's Gnosticism. 
neo-Gnosticism, but Gnosticism nonetheless. Reality is not found in the physical world. Reality is not objective. Reality is not observable. Because what's objective and what's observable may not be what's really real about me. Reality is purely subjective, and the only way you know my reality is if I choose to reveal it to you. The world is disenchanted. Meaning, purpose, biological function, none of those things matter. They're just completely arbitrary. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, we could, there's a lot more that can be said about this, but interestingly enough, right now, the main point of conflict has moved away, really, from transgenderism and toward what's known as critical race theory. Now, I've got a two-hour webinar on this on my website. I am not going to be able to go through this in any kind of detail, although we'll talk about a number of points here. One thing, though, that I want to note is the connection between what you see in critical race theory and the thinking that goes into the transgender movement. In critical race theory, one of the things that you will see is a, a discussion of, uh, of white supremacy. And if you look up your definitions of white supremacy, one of the things that comes up is the idea of objectivity is an example of white supremacy. If you insist on objectivity, if you insist that there is something objective that we can know it, that's an example of whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege, somewhere in those categories. What this means then is that where this goes and what's underlying this is that the subjective experience of oppressed people, particularly the subjective experience of, of people of color, is truth. Thus, what to me does not look like a microaggression or an act of racism or something else, if a person of color thinks that's what it is, that's what it is. It's what Vody Balcom calls ethnic Gnosticism. That you may not know it, but because of who I am and because of my background and my subjective experience, I know it when I see it. And if you don't see it, that's your problem. You're in the wrong, that's white supremacy. What this means then is that if you were to use statistics, facts, verifiable data, or anything like that, to question the narrative of oppression in any particular circumstance, the answer is, that's white privilege speaking. My subjective experience trumps that. What we are then is back to a form of Gnosticism. We're back to a kind of insistence on subjectivity rather than objectivity as the ground of truth. And this is one of the things that allows critical race theorists and more broadly critical theorists in general to make common cause with other groups. Now, again, I'm, I can't go through all the details here, but if you take a look at feminism or many branches of feminism, you see the same kind of thing. What feminism means to, well, there are multiple strands of feminism, but the ones I'm thinking about particularly right now are what feminism means is that men oppress women, and the only way for women to take their rightful place in society is to put men in their place, take power away from them, and 
be, and get power for themselves. And what that means in practice is that they've got to become men. As an example of something that I've, I've just seen recently that I think illustrates this in a pop culture way, I think it's on Amazon Prime. There's a new show that's come out called Enola. And it's about, I believe that was the name, it's about Sherlock Holmes' younger sister. And Sherlock Holmes' younger sister is smarter than he is, a better detective than he is, and in the previews we discover that this petite young woman is able to take out in a fight an older, more experienced, bigger uh, man, more experienced fighter and all of that kind of thing. She can take him out anyway. She can, anything you can do, I can do better. And even though the reality of the thing is that size and strength matter a huge amount in a fight, it doesn't matter. She's a woman. She can do it. You see this over and over again in pop culture. It's essentially a, you know, a denial of what is real about the world in favor of a fantasy of what we want it to be. Or you can look at uh, green politics. Green politics is something similar. In green politics, the oppressor is industrialized world, the oppressed is the planet, and the way to save the planet is to destroy the industrialized world. It's a little bit oversimplified, but it's basically the same kind of idea. Both of those, incidentally, all of these are ways of re-enchanting the world. The LGBTQ is re-enchanting the world through my creation of my own identity. CRT, critical race theory, is re-enchanting the world by creating racism or anti-racism as a cause. Feminism, same way. Green politics, same way. Every one of them is a way to try to re-enchant the world. By the way, there are other ways of doing it too. White nationalism is a way of re-enchanting the world. That's something that is really worth thinking about. Uh, Neo-paganism is a way of re-enchanting the world. And by the way, there are people who in the neo-pagan movement who fall into both eco-spirituality on the one hand and white nationalism on the other. You've got quite a range there. But all of them are trying to re-enchant the world. All of them are trying to find some sort of meaning, purpose, or whatever in this world. Now, the thing that unites most of them, not the white nationalists and the neo-pagans, but the thing that unites all the others is a movement called critical theory. Now, again, I'm not going to go through a lot of detail here, just a thumbnail sketch of the history and the core ideas here. It starts with this guy, Antonio Gramsci, really some predecessors before him, but he's really the key figure to get this going. Gramsci was an Italian communist between World Wars I and II, and he asked himself the question, why is it that the proletariat haven't risen up in revolution the way Marx predicted? And his answer, fundamentally, was that the problem was worldview. The proletariat had bought into the worldview, the values of the middle class. He called this the hegemony, this, this uh, dominance of middle class thinking. And since they bought into it, they didn't even realize they were oppressed. So for him, the neo-Marxist approach to solving the problem wasn't found in economic conflict. It was found in conflict fundamentally over worldview, over values. Gramsci's ideas were picked up by the Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt, which later relocated to Columbia University in America. And these guys are the guys that are going to start a movement known as the New Left. 
And what we're dealing with now in critical theory is really the product of the new left. Some key concepts. Society is divided up between oppressors and oppressed. Now, in Marxist terms, this was owners versus workers, but after Gramsci, the neo-Marxists changed this away from purely economic to any kind of social relations. All social relations are built around haves versus have-nots, oppressors versus the oppressed. Thus, white people are oppressors of people of color. Men are oppressors of women. Christians are oppressors of pretty much any other religion. Western civilization is the oppressor of all non-Western civilizations, and so on. Now, it's worth noting in the midst of this that the definition of oppression, actually, it's a moving target. It changes quite a bit. So, for example, it used to be that in order to be a racist, you had to harbor racist thoughts or attitudes, and frequently these would be manifested in actions, whether it be ethnic slurs or lynching. That used to be the definition of racism. As it turns out, the definition shifted. The definition is shifted first to the idea that you not only have to harbor racist thoughts or attitudes, but you also had to have access to power in order to implement them. And the assumption was that whites had access to power and people of color didn't. Now, just a quick story on this. I first encountered this really in connection with feminism back when I was in grad school. I was a teaching assistant, and as a result, I had to go to a political re excuse me, a uh, sexual uh, harassment awareness workshop. Uh, yeah, that's what it was called. Um, now, before this, I had been, the classroom where I was a TA, just prior to this, had a class from the Women's Studies program that was taught by a woman who had an endowed chair. Now, for those of you who don't know what that means in the academic world, she's at the top of the pecking order. That's about as high as you can get is in a down chair. That's as high as you can get in academia. And one day I'd walked into the classroom and there were handouts left over and as a chronic reader I picked one up and looked at it. And among other things it said, pornography is a textbook teaching men how to treat women. I thought, saw that and I said, well, okay, fine. Yeah, whatever. And I basically ignored it. But then I went to my sexual harassment workshop and I found out there that as a male, I had access to institutional power, and so there were certain things that I couldn't say that a woman could say because she doesn't have access to institutional power. So I went up to the presenter and I said, all right, I I'm not putting in a complaint or anything, I just want to understand this. And I told him the story about that handout, and then I said, okay, now if I were to say something really stupid, like Harlequin, Harlequin Romance is our textbook teaching women how to have relationships. I could get in trouble for that, right? He said, oh yeah, absolutely. So I said, so what's the difference between that and the handout on pornography? And he said, with a perfectly straight face, well, you have access to institutional power. I was a grad student. She was an endowed chair. Which of us actually had access to institutional power? The whole framework is nonsense. To put it differently, and I don't really mean to pick on the specific individual I'm going to name here. This really isn't about her personally. But take a look at Malia Obama, 21 years old, 
If you compare Malia Obama to the son, the white son of a coal miner in Appalachia, which one of them has access to institutional power? It's not race. At least it isn't only race. Now don't, don't get me wrong here. Racism is a real problem. It is a serious problem and we need to deal with it. Critical race theory isn't the right way to go about doing that. Okay. Um, but, it, but to take it one step further, now it's no longer racist attitudes and access to institutional power. And the latest things that have come out, for example, the book White Fragility, simply being white makes you a racist. Whether or not you ever have a racist thought, whether you say a racist word or do a racist thing, you are a racist simply because of the fact that you're white, because you are a participant in a culture that is irredeemably racist and therefore you benefit from it, so you're a racist. Changing definitions. Remember what I said about in a disenchanted word world, words lose their meaning? What you're seeing is that. The words are being weaponized. They're being used in very, very specific ways to try to control thought, discourse, and so on. More on that in a second. So we've got that. Another thing we have is the idea of intersectionality. Intersectionality says that all oppression is connected. So sexism is connected to racism, is connected to homophobia, is connected to Islamophobia, is connected to fill in the blank. They're all basically the same thing. And the more of these categories, you, you can be an oppressor in one category and oppressed in another. The more categories of oppression you are under, oddly enough, the better. Because critical thing to understand in critical theory. This is probably the most important thing you need to understand. Everything in life is a zero-sum game, which means that in order for one person to advance, the only way they can advance is by pushing somebody else down. Whites have power because they have taken it away from blacks. Western civilization, historically, is the dominant civilization because they've taken it away from non-Western people. Christianity is in the ascendant because they've taken power from pagans and Muslims. Men over women, um, heterosexual over homosexual, on and on and on. It is always they have taken power away because power is a zero-sum game. In order for one person to gain it, somebody else has to lose it. Privilege is a zero-sum game. If you are in a privileged group, you got it by taking privilege from someone else. This is why all discussions of white privilege focus on fundamentally taking privilege away from whites rather than sh spreading privilege to non-whites. Let's take an example, driving while black. Real thing that happens. I've talked to, I don't know how many young African-American men, they get pulled over for trivial offenses or even no offense at all for no particular reason that I don't get pulled over for. It's a real problem. So what's the solution? Is the problem to take away my white privilege and pull me over as much as you pull the blacks over, or is the solution to stop pulling the blacks over? I take option B. But you see, you can't do that because privilege is a zero-sum game. You can't spread privilege to other groups. You have to take it away from the ones who have it in order to give it to those who don't. It's a really fundamentally flawed way of looking at the world, but that's what they're doing. 
Moral authority is also a zero-sum game. And this is really, again, the critical thing you need to understand. You gain more... When you oppress someone, you lose moral authority. Oppression is evil. If you oppress another person, and simply by being part of a class, you are an oppressor, okay? If you oppress another person, you lose moral authority. But since moral authority is a zero-sum game, the moral authority you lose goes to the victim. So, the more classes, intersectionality, the more categories of victimhood you can demonstrate, the more moral authority you have and the more right you have to speak. The fewer you have, the less moral authority and the less right to speak. The zero-sum game is really, you have to understand that if you're going to understand how critical theory works. And understand it, you better because this is the worldview competitor that we're facing in America today. Let's talk a little bit about the tactics that you see here. The guy on the left there is Rudy Duchki. In 1967, in imitation of Mao Zedong's long march through China when he took over the country, he started arguing that what we need is a long march through the institutions, by which he meant that as a communist, they need to play the long game. And what that means is they can't think about winning in the next election cycle. It isn't going to happen. Instead, what they need to do is grab hold of the institutions that shape the culture. So this term, the long march through the institutions, was actually popularized by the other guy in the picture there. That's Herbert Marcuse from the Frankfurt School. In his book, uh, Counter-Revolution and Revolt in 1972, he talked about this. And in particular, he focused on the media as an institution that they needed to grab hold of to begin shaping the moral imagination of the culture. Then, Max Horkheimer, another member of the, the Institute, the uh, Frankfurt School, made this comment. The revolution won't happen with guns. Rather, it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. We will gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move toward universal egalitarianism. So they're going to infiltrate the media, they're going to infiltrate the schools, and they're going to infiltrate politics. And through that, they are going to reshape the culture. In new left terminology, people are living with false consciousness. They bought into the lie of the culture. We have to then raise consciousness by making them aware of their oppression, and then that will create class consciousness, or as we call it today, identity politics. And that is how they're going to win. And 40-some-odd years later, looks like a really good strategy. Along with that, another thing that I would really want to emphasize is, once again, the disenchantment of language. This starts with the premise that reality is a social construct. We've actually deconstructed reality as well. The idea here, this is a standard postmodernist line, the idea here is that objective reality is inaccessible to us. Every one of us is shaped so much by our culture that we can only see things through our own cultural lenses, which means that we have no direct access to reality. It's a social construct. 
Further, as I mentioned before, language has no connection to reality either. Words are simply arbitrary symbols that we assign meaning to. And when we do that, we can sort of communicate more or less, but there is no direct connection between words and what they represent. What we're seeing here is a loss of logos, a loss of word, logic, reason, everything else. Then we add to that a theory from linguistics known as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis says that your language shapes how you think, not the other way around. Language shapes thought. What you can think is only what you can express in your language. When you put all this together, the conclusion, and I'm gonna have to go through this pretty quickly, the conclusion is that if you want to control reality, you've gotta control culture, because what we think of as reality is simply a cultural construct. But to control culture, control language. Because if you can control language, if you can control what people can say, you can control what they think. Now the interesting thing about this is that fundamentally this is a kind of re-enchantment of language. However, it's a re-enchantment of language as black magic. In every traditional magic system, the one thing that every one of them that I've ever studied, and I've studied a lot of them, the one thing that every one of them says is evil, even if you accept the concept of white magic, everybody says that when you use magic to control another person, it is evil. And this entire approach to using language then is functionally black magic. Now there are other tools that they want to use. We talked about politics and things like that as well. I'm not gonna go there. Um, short version of this is that what you can't legislate, you impose, and you do this through the courts, you do this through the regulatory state, and ultimately, in a lot of cases, you do it through the IRS. I can't really pursue that one much further because I am pretty much out of time, or at least very close to it. So the question is, this is the disenchanted world we live in, or at least this is the disenchanted world people think they live in. The problem is, it's all a lie. Because the world is not disenchanted. Everybody thinks it is, they act as if it is, but the world is not disenchanted. We live in an enchanted cosmos. The universe, the cosmos, the world of ordered beauty and structure, the world that is based on the logos, the, the logic, the reason of God that was spoken by God into existence, is enchanted. Now, metaphorically. We, think about this. We live in a visible world that is embedded in a much bigger invisible world. Think about the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We have to remember that there's an invisible world. And that, that invisible world is much bigger than the world that we seem to be living in, in physical time and space. 
And that that invisible world is the thing that gives this world meaning. If the physical world is all that, is, that exists, there is no meaning, because meaning is neither matter nor energy. But there is meaning because the physical world participates in a much bigger world, an invisible one. Think about time and eternity. We live in a world of time, but our world of time is embedded in an eternity, in, 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 in eternity, in something bigger and vaster, where really in eternity, time almost has no meaning. That is a, a, a vast, mind-blowing concept, really. Or think about the physical and the spiritual. The physical world, just like the visible and invisible inter exist within each other, the physical and spiritual world interpenetrate each other. The spiritual world affects the physical. If you want a simple example, think about all the scriptural examples we have of demonic possession or of miracles. And similarly, the physical influences the spiritual. We can see this again in uh, the accounts of, G of healings, for example, in Jesus' ministry. We can see this in a wide range of ways. But especially, we see it in the sacraments, which are physical objects that, when consecrated, carry with them spiritual significance. And speaking of the sacraments, let's not limit the sacraments understood broadly to just baptism and Eucharist. We live in a sacramental world. A sacrament is something that, well, a physical object that conveys spiritual grace, okay, you know, something along those lines. But in a deeper sense, what a sacrament is, is a physical object that points to deeper spiritual realities. And you know what? There are a lot of those. Scripture is loaded with those. The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. The tree is sacramental. It is a picture of spiritual realities that go beyond itself. Seeds, soil, stars. All of these things are sacramental. Things have meaning. Ideas are not the only things that have meaning. Things have meaning. Our bodies have meaning, which, by the way, is the big problem with the LGBTQ stuff. It denies the meaning of the body. Work has meaning. The work that we do, whatever it is, all of our physical labor, that has meaning because we live in an enchanted cosmos. And what we do in this enchanted cosmos matters. And it matters for more than just the work that we do physically around us. Think about the fact that you are made in the image of God. Now, there are all kinds of arguments about what that means. I'm going to actually go with the one that it points to our, the idea of human beings as royal stewards on the earth. Okay, but we don't need to pursue that one much further right now. Christian thought for centuries argued 
that part of what being made in the image of God meant was that we are a microcosm of creation. What does that mean? Remember the visible and invisible? Look at the enchanted cosmos. Visible and invisible? We have a, we're certainly visible, we've got bodies, but we've got an invisible soul. We live our life in time, but we are made for eternity. We are physical creatures, but we are also spiritual creatures. We are rational creatures, but we're also sensual creatures. Everything in the universe, according to much ancient Christian thought, everything in the universe finds its union point in us. We are a microcosm of everything that God has made. And then, as if that weren't enough, God himself took on a human nature. Do you realize that with the incarnation, the eternal, unchanging God changed? God himself acquired something that he didn't have before. He, the source and origin of all things, did not have a human nature. With the incarnation, he does. And for all eternity, God is unified with us because he shares a nature with us. And yes, we have to say it that way. The incarnation is a mind-boggling example of a world fraught with meaning, overflowing with meaning. You know, we talk about redemption, and in the Western tradition, we always think about redemption in terms of forgiveness of sins. And that's certainly there. But if you go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's not what they emphasize. They emphasize something else that you see all over Paul's letters, the idea that we are in Christ. We, have, we are united with Christ. We are in union with Christ. And what that means is not only does God share our nature, but now, as Peter tells us, we become partakers of the divine nature. We are lifted up and united with God. Think about that. Think about, go back to the incarnation. Think about what it says about human significance and human dignity that God himself took on the common nature with us. This is what an enchanted world looks like. We don't need to re-enchant the world. We are in a world bursting with enchantment bursting with meaning. All of those things that disappear, at least in terms of the way people think of it, all those things that disappear with the disenchantment of the world, we've got in spades. We've got something so much better than anything that the world imagines. And we have a solution to the problems of identity. We have a solution to the problems of, well, race, fill in the blank, any of the other problems that we've got there. We have in the gospel something that is so much better and so much farther beyond anything that the culture can even begin to imagine. We just have to believe it. And we've got to start acting on it. I don't think I have any more to say than that. So... Amen. We 
know that you wanted to be at the Fight Laugh Feast Conference, but you can't come all the days. We have a day pass where you can come on Saturday where you get to hear great speakers like Pastor Doug Wilson, Pastor Jared Longshore, Pastor Toby Sumter, Cross Politics Live Show with Jason Woodlock and Megan Basham. Join us for the Sabbath Feast where we get to laugh with comedian John Brannion all for the low, low price of $99. Sign up for the day pass, flfnetwork.com. Looking forward to seeing you there at the conference. It is the duty of the free man to resist tyranny at every turn. Every man will either watch his freedom stripped away or take action to protect what he loves. Introducing the A3, the newest revolutionary body armor from Armored Republic. The A3 is the new standard for lightweight multi-hit body armor. A3 plates are incredibly light at 4.6 pounds. The patented design captures fragmentation while remaining multi-hit capable. The A3 will stop up to M80 ball, yet comes in at only 0.7 inches thick. The A3 is the thinnest NIJ.06 compliant or certified composite standalone plate that includes the drop test. The A3 is the first of its kind, patent pending, that combines an alloy strike face with polyethylene backing, revolutionizing body armor technology by providing strength and durability while remaining sleek and maneuverable. The A3 is the new standard in lightweight body armor. The fight against tyranny just got stronger.